M.G. Leonard is the best-selling writer of children's books, such as the Beetle Boy trilogy and the Adventures on Trains series. Her books have been translated into over 40 languages, and Beetle Boy is currently in development as a live-action series for TV. Her latest title, Twitch, is the first in the new Twitchers series, and in her recent conversation with Nikki Gamble, Nikki asked her to start by setting up the story of Twitch for us. Yes. So at the beginning of the story, Twitch is a social outcast at school. He's probably quite a peculiar child, really, in that he knows his own mind and he knows what he likes. uh, And uh, that kind of makes him at odds with the rest of the kids in his class. But at the beginning of the book, we've just come to the end of the summer term. And Twitch is looking forward to a summer holiday in which he plans to do nothing except sit in his hide in his local nature reserve and watch all of the birds nesting and all of the chicks fledging um, across the summer. That's his idea of heaven. However, his plans are foiled because two nights before the beginning of the summer holiday, a convict escapes from a local prison and the police track the convict to the nature reserve. Now, the convict is a bank robber, and the rumours are that the convict has come back to the nature reserve because their loot is hidden there. So there are lots of people tramping around the nature reserve, including the police, all searching for the convict or the missing loot, and there's a lot of excitement and a lot of fuss, which is infuriating to Twitch because Twitch wants peace and quiet so he can watch his birds. As well as Twitch being obviously the main character in this story, the other big characters are the birds themselves. Now, we all know that you love beetles, and I've read your author's note about how beetles led you into birds, but I'd like to know a little bit more um, about that. Yeah, so when I was doing lots of events uh, for the beetle books uh, up and down the country, I met lots of young readers who loved insects, Um, but who were also passionate bird watchers. And I learned about the connection between insects and birds um, when I was writing Beetle Queen. But lots of bird watchers kept saying, come join us, come to Birdfest, come and get involved in our community. And to begin with, I was reluctant. But what was interesting is the more bird watchers that I met and the more I learnt about the pastime of bird watching. I thought, well, it's not that different when you go on a bug hunt. I go looking in the undergrowth for insects. Actually, you can do both. You can look in the undergrowth for insects and also notice the birds around you. Uh, And it kind of broadened my view of the world as I started noticing birds and then looking at birds and thinking about bird watching. Um, And I always listen to my readers. Uh, Quite a lot of them were saying we'd love a book about birds. And I thought, could I do that? I'm not sure. And so in 2019, I set off on a short research trip with my family to Hebden Bridge in Yorkshire um, to a nature reserve called Cromwell Bottom, which I'd heard had a really interesting mix of birds. And I also love that part of the world. And so there in Cromwell Bottom, I encountered my first kingfisher. And I can really pinpoint that moment as the moment that I just fell in love with birdwatching. Now, in your book, there is another character, Jack, who doesn't know much about birds to begin with. You've come across very keen birdwatching children. I've wondered whether you'd also come across those that really don't know the difference between a blackbird 
and a crow, which, of course, is one of the (laughs) distinctions in the book. When you write a book, uh, you put a little bit of yourself in every single character, even the horrible characters. You know, you really have to try and put yourself in the place of that character. And um, when I grew up, I was an urban child. I didn't know anything about the natural world. And we lived in London. And then suddenly uh, my family suffered a financial misfortune. And we ended up living out in this place called Little Gaddesden in Hertfordshire, which is a little village in a farmhouse, like a mile from anywhere. And it was like being dropped in ice cold water. I did not have any words or vocabulary or coping mechanisms to deal with countryside. And I remember uh, going to the local village school and it being announced that we were going to go out on a nature hunt for the day. That's what the school day was. And we were given a sheet of all of the things that we needed to go and find, like find an oak leaf, find a rowan berry. And, and I was like, I thought all trees were trees. I did not know that there were different types of tree and I did not know how you differentiated one tree from another. And I found it a very alienating experience. And because it was assumed knowledge, because everyone who grew up in this village obviously knew all these things instinctively, no one thought to teach me. Uh, So I just felt isolated from that kind of an experience. And Jack is a character that is isolated from that kind of an experience. That kinship that you feel with nature is not there for them. And I think that's a terrible thing. And for me, it was reading The Secret Garden at about 10 or 11 that made me realise that it was something you could learn. And so that is behind a lot of the books that I write. That's a, a lot of my motivation for writing. And one of the things that I really wanted to do with Jack was to uh, show the journey that you can go on you know, when you start from a position of not knowing uh, and the joy that it can bring you and the wonder as you learn. And sometimes, obviously, if you are isolated from an experience and you don't understand it, you can mock it or bully others for having that knowledge. So um, that's very much a part of this story. Um, The thing that gives Twitch the strength and his own sense of identity is his knowledge and understanding of the bird world. Yeah. And he believes that he can exist on his own. He doesn't need other people. But actually, he does develop a good friendship. And so he has something to gain through this story as well. Yeah, I think that's a narrative that socially outcast children teach themselves. I know it's something that I built around myself in secondary school to protect myself, was that it was okay if I didn't have friends, but I didn't need friends. I had my imagination and I had books and I, you know, and for Twitch, it's like, well, it's fine if other children don't like me. I I have other, I have birds and I have my chickens and I have my pigeons and Children are great at coping with those social difficulties, but it doesn't change the fact that when Twitch begins to have a meaningful friendship, he can't go back to being someone who didn't mind not having friends. Like, you know, it's his big journey in this story is opening himself up and making himself vulnerable and discovering that friendship actually really can bring you great joy but you have to be brave. You know, there's a lot of bravery in this story from all of the children, actually. Yeah. Um, Having said there are no bad children, 
you do like a good villain. I get a sense that you enjoy writing your villains. <laughs> Obviously, in the Beetle books, you have a villain to rival Cruella de Vil, without a doubt. In this one, you kind of challenge the stereotype a little bit, don't you? Yeah, I think that it's really interesting what people assume about a villain and actually what is villainous behaviour. There's a character in Twitch called Amita, his lovely next door neighbour, and uh, she speaks the sense in this book. And one of the things that's very difficult about villainous people is they quite often pass themselves off as trustworthy and they get inside your head in a way that is motivated by what they want. Uh, And uh, I really wanted to play with the notion of who really is a villain in this story, because at different points, the reader will think, oh, that is a bad character. They are bad. Uh, And really, at the end, when you think about it, there is only one character in this story who is 100% bad. And I will not tell you who it is. (laughs) Um, The book is almost entirely, if not entirely, uh, focalised from Twitcher's point of view. It's a classic third-person narrative. I wondered, with it being so close to one focalizational point of view, whether you had ever considered writing it as a first-person. Tell us a little bit more about your point of view. Yes, I have to say, every book I have written so far, with the exception of my non-fiction Beetle Collector's Handbook, has been third-person narrative focalised through characters. In Beetle Boy, the focalised narrative swaps between different characters at different times to give you a view. But I really enjoy having the opportunity to provide the omniscient narrative. The the thing about uh, writing for children is that I really try and introduce vocabulary and thought processes that might be a little bit sophisticated. I think that a good children's book should always stretch their brain a little. Uh, And if you focalise a narrative, if you just do a first-person narrative through a child and you're true to that child, uh, unless that child is some kind of genius, Mm. you're really limiting some of the things that you can share with the reader. I often do scratch writing where I'll write a scene from a character's point of view and just show what they can see. And I will do scratch writing before I set out on writing my first draft to give me an idea. I did think at one point that I might do focalised narrative, like some chapters from Twitch and some chapters from Jack's point of view. Mm -hmm. But actually, I found that that pulled the story in a direction that I didn't want it to go in. Uh, There will be a follow up book to Twitch And that book will be, again, third person, but focalised through Jack. It's interesting. You know, my personal preference is third person storytelling, classic storytelling. I think it's very hard to do first person well for the reasons that you've talked about there. And there's something about being led by the hand by a writer who's kind of accompanying you on that reading journey as well. I think first person's brilliant at exploring emotional intensity in a protagonist. I feel like the intensity of emotions that uh, teenagers experience means that it's a very like useful way of telling a story for those readers. But this book isn't about emotion, really, you know, and I like the fact that young readers can project their own emotional responses and experience because the emotion of the protagonist isn't overwhelming. 
Uh, while we're talking about the emotional intensity or not of the book, this is very different in tone to your other stories. Was that partly because you were writing it during the pandemic or did you feel the need to kind of write a different kind of story or was it just that we need this more hopeful storytelling at this point in time? I didn't set out thinking, oh, I want this to be a joyous and hopeful book because it was uh, this story has kind of developed over two years. The first year was you know, pre-pandemic and yeah, I didn't think much about the nature of the narrative. And then my mother-in-law, who is a huge inspiration to me and a massive bird lover, she was diagnosed with a terminal uh, cancer. And suddenly hope became really important. And this book became the book that I wrote for her. And she was a joyous human being and she loved children. She was the headmistress of a primary school and her kind of ethos and attitude to children is completely and utterly peppered throughout this book. And then of course the pandemic happened. We lost her. It was a very difficult time. And I just thought, you know, I don't want to write anything dark right now. I want to write something about the goodness of people and people's capacity for change and people's capacity for growth and the joy of nature and really show that you can find joy even in the darkest times. And so that became the whole tone of the book. Let's talk about the exciting aspects of of the book and, and the plot. Are you somebody that's you know, is a real plotter because this kind of story, you do have to be quite tight. Yeah, I'm, I have a very structured way that I approach writing books now. When I wrote Beetle Boy, it took me 10 years to write Beetle Boy and I really didn't know what I was doing. And I wrote the draft 14 times. And the first draft of Beetle Boy was 120,000 words and the published book is 50. So you get an idea of just how little I knew about writing a book when I first set out to become a writer. And one of the things that was a really good lesson to me was understanding the structure of narratives, the five-act structure, the three-act structure, the, the hero's arc, all of those things. And then I was quite horrified when Beetle Boy came out. It became very successful very quickly, which was a surprise to everyone, including me. And the publishers were like, well, we have to publish the next book within 12 months or your readers will forget about you and grow up and you'll lose them all. And I was like, what? It took me 10 years to write one book. I can't write a book in a year. And so at that point, I realized I needed to get very professional and treat it like a job and work out how I write books. It took me a good couple of years to hone that. But I start off with a spreadsheet and it's divided into act one, act two, act three, act four, act five. My act one is never more than 10,000 words. In it, every character is introduced. The problem is expressed. I'm now very well-versed in the structure of a book. And one of the things I do before I write any kind of a draft, I get post-it notes. I think about every aspect of the story. I think about the arcs of certain characters. I put them into five acts on a wall. Uh, I spend a week probably staring at a wall and thinking and reading research books and just trying to get the shape of a story. And I consider that what I call gathering the ingredients. Like if you were making a cake, you gather all the ingredients and you measure up all the right amounts that you need for all the different things. You don't start cooking. And that's really a strong part of my process. And I've honed it so I can turn around books that are really well thought through quickly. 
That's really interesting. One of the questions that I was going to ask was whether you consider writing principally to be an art or a profession. I think it's a craft. So I'm going down the middle there. I'm, I, I mean, it's both an art and a profession. But for me, a very helpful metaphor for writing books is uh, making chairs. So anyone can make a chair but you wouldn't necessarily want to sit on it. Some people can make absolutely beautiful chairs that are very uncomfortable. And some people can make really comfy chairs that look really ugly, but feel amazing. And so there is a craft to learning how to make a chair. And then once you've learned that craft, you can become an artist and you can take it to different levels. And I, it's, it's the same metaphor I use to discuss celebrity authors writing children's books, which is a very contentious issue. And it's like, look, anyone can make a chair, but I want my children to sit on chairs that will help their bones be in a good position that will enable them to learn whilst they're sat in that chair. I want that chair to be made by an expert in making chairs. And, you know, quite often celebrities are not experts in making chairs. So, I think of it like a craft. And I the reason why I use this analogy is that my father-in-law is a woodturner and makes rushed seating chairs. And I know, I know the artist that he is. So the craft, the skill, the labor, and the fact that he's invested an entire lifetime in becoming an expert in making the most exquisite and beautiful chairs that feel amazing to sit on, it takes real skill but it just looks like a chair at the end of the day, you know? Um, and that's the thing I think about writing a book. Um, it is an art. It is a skill. It is a craft. I think you get better at it as time goes on and you want to do more interesting things with it. And it's something you can spend a lifetime doing as well. It's a, a joyous thing. Um, but it is also, if you want to make a living, a profession, mm -hmm. and you have to understand the business and the fact that you're making a chair to be sat on by other people that will go in a shop and have to be purchased. You know, you're not just making it for your own child. It's the same with a book. Uh, and that takes a lot, a lot of people, editors and, you know, illustrators and just so many people. It would be really great actually to hear some of the story. And I think you have a part of the book, chapter four, that you're going to read to us today. Tell us a bit about how this fits into the story and then I, we'd love to hear it. Yes. So the reason I've chosen the beginning of chapter four is because it's the beginning of the excitement in the nature reserve. Twitch has noticed that the police are they're there with sniffer dogs. There's helicopters. There's policemen like searching the pond. Uh, and he doesn't know why they're there or what is going on. So he's exploring, trying to understand what's happening in the nature reserve. Uh, and in that process, he encounters two suspicious and frightened behaving girls hiding. Uh, and so this is the moment where he tries to find out what those girls are up to. Uh, and chapter four is called A Silver Kingfisher. By the time Twitch reached the end of the rabbit track, the girls had gone. He felt deflated. Now he'd never know why they were hiding or looking scared. He didn't think they were local. He'd never seen them before, and Bridvale was a small town. Most likely, they were early summer tourists. Going over to the fallen tree trunk, Twitch crouched in the same spot the girls had and peered over the top. He had a clear view of the main footpath. 
At the distant crossroads stood a squadron of police officers with stern faces. Whatever was happening in Aves Wood, Twitch realised with a thrill that he shouldn't be here. He crawled backwards, and his eye glimpsed the shimmer of a violet ground beetle scurrying under leaf mulch, hunting for slugs to eat. It scuttled over a string of blue and green beads, half hidden in the leaves. He picked it up between thumb and forefinger. It was a bracelet with a tiny silver bird dangling from it, a kingfisher. It felt like a sign. He slipped it into his pocket. If he saw the girls again, he'd use the bracelet as an excuse to talk to them and find out why they'd been spying on the police. Thinking it best not to look suspicious, Twitch marched upright and noisily through the trees to the main footpath. And sure enough, before he got there, an officer had called out to him. You, young man, come here. Yes, sir, Twitch obeyed. What's going on, officer? he asked. Why are there so many police here? They're climbing the woods, the officer replied. Are you on your own? Twitch nodded. Bird watching. He pointed at the binoculars around Twitch's neck and smiled. Twitch nodded again. Seen anyone around here that you don't know? Twitch thought of the two girls, but was already shaking his head. The girls had looked scared of the police and he didn't want to get them into any trouble. Mm. So you get your kingfisher and your beetle. It's good that the beetles are still there. Your settings are called Bridville, which I'm guessing is sort of playing around with bird, but making it not quite so obvious. And Abe's wood from the same kind of Latin root there. Are they based on real places? Yes, Abe's wood is Cromwell Bottom. And when I wrote the book, first draft, it was very location specific. So uh, it was very Yorkshire. The co- It was in the Calder Valley. There was Hebden Bridge. There was uh, Brig House. It's not a book about Yorkshire. It's a book about children loving birds. And I didn't want it to become so site specific. What I wanted it to be was universal in that I wanted the, the nature reserve or the woods to be like any woods down the road from any kid's house anywhere. So I didn't want it to be about the location. So, I mean, if you go to the places in Hebden Bridge and along the canal, you'll see I have described them absolutely accurately. And the map at the front of the book of Aves Wood is, if you've got the map for Cromwell Bottom, like is almost identical with a few fictional uh, embellishments to make the story more interesting. So they are based on real places. Brid is actually the old English word for bird. So uh, Bridvale is basically the Valley of the Birds, would be a direct modern translation. And Aves Wood basically means the wood of the birds. So I picked uh, naming uh, conventions that would just amplify the birdness of this book, uh, everything that's named, uh, the locks in the canal, the places that they go to, all have bird names. And I really wanted the book to be infused with birds in a way that the more you learnt about birds, the more you would get out of this book. Mm-hmm. So there's plover lock, which is a type of bird, and there's Kittawake cliff, and there's Passerine point. Every naming convention I could find 
uses as much bird vocabulary as possible because I do think in children's rich and developing subconsciousness, if you place those words in there uh, without pointing them and saying, learn this, it's important. When they make the connections themselves, they'll experience delight and wonder. So, so yes, I do play with names in this book. Just one final question for you. On this journey to becoming a, a bird watcher, what so far has been your most precious and exciting bird watching moment? Well, I'm in the phase of bird watching where I <laughs> keep making terrible mistakes and getting things wrong because I'm not an expert. So a few weeks ago, it was Dawn Chorus Day and I got up at four in the morning and we went to our local nature reserve. I'd brought my Zoom recorder uh, to record the sound of the Dawn Chorus. And there was this bird making really weird noises. It sounded like the bird was making the noise of a Second World War bomb being dropped from an aeroplane. So going. <whistles> and then the sound of a child pretending to be a machine gun. So. Uh, 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 and it was like. <whistles> uh, 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 and I was like, how weird is that noise? Uh, I didn't think anything of it. I got home and I thought, oh, I'll get my Zoom recorder out and I'll see what that bird was. It turned out it was a nightingale. If I had known I was listening to a nightingale, I would have followed the song and seen the bird. And this kind of happens to me often. I don't know what I'm hearing. So now I've downloaded an app to my phone that can recognise a bird song and tell me what it is so that if I'm in that situation again, I can try and see the bird. So I'm still making mistakes, but I cannot tell you the joy and the delight I felt to realise that I had at least been in the presence of a nightingale. <laughs> what a great story. Maya, thank you so much for joining me in the Reading Corner today and telling us a little bit more about Twitch. Um, I'm sure it's going to find many readers who are going to become as keen about birds as they have about beetles from reading your stories. Oh, I do hope so. And thank you for having me, Nikki. It's a pleasure to be here. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.